Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, good morning. Let me have you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, it's our, our habit or our custom to go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, expositionally preaching uh, the Word of God. Uh, but at the beginning of every year, we try to focus on a few things uh, that we think are especially important uh, for the life of this church. Uh, and so we've done that the last four weeks, and this is the final one. And that, next week, we'll be back in the Gospel of John. Uh, but this morning, we want to focus in on the mission and vision of the Mount Church, and again from Luke 14, and I'll just pick up reading now in verse 1. Here the Spirit-inspired author writes this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But... When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because you, they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. 
but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, okay, (laughs) go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would make it effectual now. In great power upon our hearts, grant the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do and delights to do for us. Uh, Please build us up in sincerity and in humility and in charity and give us a heart to go out all over the world to compel people to come into the kingdom of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what the, uh, the talk around your dinner table is like, but ours always seems to offer quite a range of interesting discovery. For instance, uh, I learned this week what my children would love to be experts at if they could become so by osmosis. I also learned what they'd love to be able to shoot out of their belly buttons at liberty, and that this ranged from electricity, lightning bolts, uh, to fresh flowers. And uh, on a related note, I also learned that this entire line of thinking originated in our women's study group. (laughs) As if you needed any more incentive, ladies, to make your attendance this evening a priority. That said... One of the things that happens around our table, on a more serious note, is quite a bit of evangelism and discipleship, discovering what it means to really walk with Jesus. Our kids have questions, and we seek to give them God's answers, so that as they grow and are faced with the decision on every side these days, whether to only hear Jesus or to then go on also to heed Jesus and to be his people, that at least be well taught to go the route of faithfulness, right? to spread His aroma in the world, to bear His heart in the world, and to be about His service. And of course, what we desire for our children in this vein is no different than what I desire for us as a distinct manifestation of the family of God. It's, what we, it's that we at least be well taught to go the route of faithfulness. Or here's how else we put it here. It's that we display the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ by proclaiming Him, Jesus Christ, to all peoples for their everlasting joy in God. A vision we mean to carry out by treasuring Jesus Christ, 
cultivating his community, and embracing his commission. In our text this morning, uh, where we find Jesus at table with a host of Pharisees, gives us occasion to discover the difference between the community of Christ and Pharisees. To see what we should be and what we should be about as the people of Jesus. And so let's just begin there with verses 1 to 14 and cultivating Christ's kind of community in three marks, especially. And the first, picking up in verse 1, is spiritual sincerity. Spiritual sincerity. That is, sincerity or honesty, we might say, before God. True grace consistently fleshed out in real time. You see, according to our text, even Pharisees can be hospitable. We want to focus on hospitality as a church, but even Pharisees can be hospitable. Even Pharisees can turn their eyes upon Jesus. He's sitting there with them and look full in his wonderful face. But do they, will they themselves bear his heart as God would have them do? That's what we're given to see here. It's the Sabbath, and a ruler of the Pharisees has opened his home to his fellows and also to Jesus. And so there Jesus is. He's at table with the set apart, and the air is rather thick. I hope you can feel it. I probably think you can. Thick with tension here. It is a, a slightly uncomfortable setting, as it seems. They don't mean to do much other than just sit there and stare at him very carefully. They're studying him. There's a man present with dropsy. And they want to see what Jesus is going to do. Now, we know from how Luke has come into this chapter that their hearts are already set against him. It's not honest observation here. They're already set against him. This is really all a setup to discredit Jesus if they can. And we're right in the middle of their attempts to get rid of him, get him out of the way. But here's the thing that while they are carefully watching Jesus, Jesus is perfectly perceiving them. Okay? Jesus knows them. And He knows the deal here around this table. And so He sets to exposing them. Right, what is it the proverb says? Something about a stone rolling back on those who start it rolling. Alright, here we go. Uh, Jesus puts it to the experts of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers. Verse 3, he says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, we need to realize they have their conviction about it, so we see their silence in verse 4 for what it actually is. And that is the unwillingness to state the obvious answer and do the right thing because that would mean repentance. Jesus, as he is wont to do, has them in a pickle here. If they say the healing on the Sabbath is permitted, they must also say their Sabbath traditions are wrong. But, if they say it's not permitted, well, then they prove to be against something that is obviously good and compassionate. Something, by the way, Jesus has already taught them just the previous chapter in Luke 13, the Sabbath, he said, there is for man, and not vice versa. And so healing this man then and there is absolutely what should be done. So then, 
Their silence on the matter actually speaks volumes. The religious leaders, for all their learning, refused to speak up one word in favor of the simplest act of kindness. And just there, we see their distance from God. For into their silence, God incarnate, Jesus, He acts. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The answer is yes. How do we know that? Because the Lord of the Sabbath just did it. He takes the man, He heals him, and He sends him on His way. And in this way, Jesus makes a profound statement about who He is, what they are not, and how God operates. He is the Christ. They are Pharisees, as we would typically understand or describe them. And as seen in Jesus, as seen in His words and actions here, God is love. God is good and He is gracious. His mercy knows no boundaries. Even on the day of rest, God's compassion does not rest. And neither should that of His people And Jesus tries to help them see this. You see verse 5? He says, Which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Their rules, apparently, do take breaks when anything dear to them is endangered. And Jesus' point then is that as we have opportunity doing good to people, period, ought to be so very dear to us. It's just basic human decency. Then again, maybe it's not so basic. You see verse 6 says, they could not reply one word to these things. Wow. Wow. It appears neither supernatural revelation, like he's just healed the guy right in front of him. It's revelation about who he is. But it appears neither that nor natural reason, as he's just tried to reason with them, could wrangle a word from them. I mean, they were hit here. They were cut here. They were exposed here but they continued to prefer the pickle to penitence. Repentance. To believing they could still hide what Jesus was perceiving and revealing. So friend, listen, you need to know that Jesus knows the truth about you. He knows the truth. He'd like for you to admit it. For just there, just there, you're going to find your healing too. You're going to find God is gracious and merciful to save you. Not just from things like dropsy, but from your sins. And dear ones, let us understand too that that God loves us too much. He loves us too much to let us go on in self-deceit. You see, this situation is really a collision. It is really a collision 
between form and power. Between the form of godliness only and the power of godliness in the heart. It is a collision between their traditions and the text of Scripture. It's a collision between their their laws and their, their rules and the actual Mosaic law. The law of God. It's a a collision between God's religion and man's knockoff, the pharisaical variety. It's a collision between whitewashed tombs and God in the flesh. On what side of all that do we find ourselves this morning? Paul said to Timothy that the aim of his charge, listen, was love that issued from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Is that our creed? Is that our creed? Is that our aim? And does it have hands and feet? If Christ came to us today and said, be real now, here's the test. Are you taken up with doing good to others? Would we pass? Well, at least I hope we would be real. In a day of so much willful self-deception in the church, being the real deal, that is, living by His Word and loving beyond ourselves is how this church can show so very well for Jesus. Let's be cultivating spiritual sincerity. Next, spiritual humility. Again, they're they're watching him, but he's also watched them, and he's seen a problem. Jesus has seen a problem in how they have seated themselves. Have you seated yourself this morning? Right? He says a problem there. And so while he has a a captive audience, why not a parable? First, the problem. You see, when they chose their seats, their choice was dictated, it was governed, it was guided, led by self-honor. Their pride picked their place. So again, on the matter of sincerity, there is a grave difference we need to understand between true and then false humility. You know the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees love to look humble, love to look humble. They marked their faces up and they would fast and they would pray to appear godly, to appear pious, to be seen by skin-deep seers who then say about them, oh, look at that man, see how humble he is. And just there, that man's pride would swell. Which is what that man would be after in the first place. There is a humility that is just pride in disguise. But not here. Not the case here. No, here, they just wear their pride on their sleeves. Apparently. It's very brash, but it's also very convicting. It is very convicting because who among us has not wanted to be recognized, appreciated, lauded for who they are, the position they hold, what they have done to obtain that position. 
If you remember our time in Esther, who has not from time to time been a Haman? That is, who has not sought honor for themselves? Now, understand, there is a place for honoring those who ought to be honored. But there is a world of difference between being honored by others and honoring oneself. And that is so much the lesson here from Jesus. The parable is really a principle of heaven put into earthly practice. He says, you're invited to a wedding. You're invited to the wedding, so then you're not the host. You're not the host. So that if you unduly honor yourself, you need to be prepared. You've only set yourself up for shame and for embarrassment as people who are more honorable than you arrive after you. Better, Jesus says, that you just go in and take the lowest possible place so that as appropriate, the host might have good reason then to publicly elevate you in the sight of all. Then you will be honored. And so you see there, again, as I said, Jesus is not opposed to honor. It's just that Jesus bestows honor upon humility. There is something honorable in true humility. In fact, if it is true humility, there's faith in it. And why would that be? Why would I say that? But because it's the believer, right? It's the believer in Christ alone who most truly discerns themselves in light of the great grace of God. Whether we're prideful or not, we of all people should know we have no right or reason to be prideful or arrogant. Here in the text, in the midst of pharisaical arrogance, is God made low. God made low. It's the Son who is the radiance of the glory of God being the servant, the suffering servant. It's the all-glorious Christ who condescended all the way to death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. And why? But to save not the righteous. but sinners like me and like you. So remind me again, why would I ever seek to honor myself? As if I've done or could do or be anything honorable apart from the grace of Christ. Why would I ever carry any kind of disdain for the lowest place when Jesus carried my cross? For me. Throw that into this church. Why would we ever push and shove and butt to snatch and or secure a so-called place of power? Why wouldn't there instead be a rush on the lowest places? Why wouldn't there be a culture of true humility and honor? Answer in the text is Phariseeism. Gospel amnesia. Practical atheism. A lapse in faith. That, as Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. While he who humbles himself 
will be exalted in due time. Dear ones, we need to learn to leave our honor to the host who has a promise to keep there. Hearing it, we ought to be the most humble people in the world as Christians. The most meek people in the world. Ought not those who know Christ best be the humblest? It would serve us so well if we could learn to be servants no matter what our station in the world. I mean, are we greater than Christ? Are we greater than Christ? No? Okay. Then let's live to God and not to man. Let's live as Christ. Take up our cross. Follow Him. Let's not live as man. Let's not think ourselves above the self-forgetful, others-exalting service that marked our Lord. As an old missionary put it, let's be happy to quote, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. That is leaving your legacy to God and to the prospects of eternity. Preach Christ, die, be forgotten. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Beloved, there is glory in preferring one another over yourself, over ourselves. There is glory in refusing to give and overlooking offense. There is glory in doing what you can to edify this people. There is glory in being a teachable soul. There is glory in taking God at His word. There is glory in being a prayerful people. There is glory in being truly broken before God over our sins. And there is glory in living by the heavenly wisdom of this God made low. Where He says, prefer love and take the very lowest place. Spiritual sincerity, spiritual humility, and now spiritual charity. Picking up in verse 12, you see, we are still around the table. And Jesus now speaks directly to the host about his invitation policy. In essence, he says it's worldly and it is faithless. It's like many charity events today where instead of doing charity directly, the host invites the the well-to-do in support of a particular charity. This is called cause marketing. Cause marketing, okay? This is my educational background. Don't know if you know this, but my undergrad at Clemson was in marketing. All right, so the idea is that you align yourself with a charitable cause. And you may do some good in that particular arena, but really, if we're being honest, these are largely coincidental to the main goal, and the main goal is self-promotion. Okay? Starbucks aligns with some aspect of social justice, or whatever we want to call it, to draw attention to Starbucks. And Jesus says to Mr. Starbuck, or Mrs. Starbuck, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't do it for you. Don't let your hospitality be about binding and building personal equity. You ought 
not be the goal of your own charity. But, my, oh my, how that does fit a world of people who so desperately love themselves. And that is why we as the church must be something totally different. That's why we must cultivate something completely different by the grace of God. Something much more akin to the heart of God and aligned with the economic policy of the world. Not this world, but the world to come. Jesus tells this great Pharisee, I don't think, that he can't ever play host to family and friends and all this kind of thing. Only that his invitation policy needs to expand beyond them to include those he would, by both nature and trade, view to be outside of the kingdom of God. The poor. The crippled. The lame. The blind. You go run through the Gospels and you will find these particular kinds of folks are subject to the idea by Jesus' own disciples, no less the Pharisees, that their hardship, blindness, lameness, cripple, whatever it is, their hardship is an expression of God's curse upon their sins. Okay? And of course, Jesus' whole ministry, no less here, consistently turns the tables on this misunderstanding of providence. But so the familiar point he he means to make for the host is just this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give, not to get a return from people, but in the process of meeting real needs to satisfy any loss we may suffer by the promise of eternal reward. He's saying, listen, God will repay. He really will. He keeps a a perfect record in order to a perpetual reward. Jesus means to lift our eyes above earthly recompense and beyond the grave even to the reality of the fact you're going to be raised from the dead. (laughs) And there is an everlasting repayment in that day. It is an economic policy that should radically redefine our invitation policy. To go outside our comfort zones, And bring in outsiders, extending to them the charity that testifies of the free grace of God. That is an expression of faith in the resurrection, of faith in the repayment of the just. It's faith in God. It's faith built upon the loaded charity of Jesus Christ. Oh, what did it cost Him to bring you and me to that great table? We can never repay. So, who do we have on our calendar this week? Who can we bless? To whom can we extend our charity? Who can we immerse in a differential hospitality? Who can we introduce to a a preview of another world? A table of true charity, a feast purposed for sinners and cast-offs, the weakest and the vilest and the poor. 
a, a salvation invitation as broad as the world, without money, without price, just, just come, the cost is completely covered. Sounds like the gospel. Spiritual sincerity, spiritual humility, spiritual charity. Doing good to, elevating, providing for others. These are a few marks of Christ's community that we want to especially cultivate this year as a church, believing that where we do that, God will be seen in our midst. The gospel will be palpable in our midst. Christ crucified and raised will be sovereign and proven in our midst. And saving grace will be gazed upon solidly in this body of Christ. There's a further question for us, though. If we need any repentance here, if we need any change of heart in life, will we do it? Will we only hear Christ? Or will we be a people who also heed Him? Will we be Christ's community? Or will we prove actually to be a little more like the Pharisee than we thought we were. The question brings us to the last of our text and to our desire to embrace Christ's commission. You see it, that we compel people to come into the kingdom. You see, picking up in verse 15, how one Pharisee, he, he finally speaks. Finally, one of them <laughs> takes the plunge. Uh, Luke tells us he, he heard all these things that we just covered, all that Jesus has said. And we don't know if it's to, to break the now awkward silence of conviction. Or what the tenor even of his response is, is it dismissive, contradictory, densely agreeable, or otherwise. But we do know he's not got the point. They need to repent. They need to alter their course. They need to leave where they are and side with Jesus. That's what they, they need to do. But this man's words imply that having heard all of these things, having in effect been invited to align his heart with the kingdom of God as one surprisingly on the outs of the kingdom, he sees no need to turn. None at all. He sees no sin in himself. No deficiency in their kind of religion. In fact, he's pretty self-congratulatory here, right? Thank you for the lessons, Jesus. I appreciate the invite, but we're good, aren't we, fellas? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And they all say, Amen. That's what he says. And in one sense... What he says is absolutely true. Right? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But the question is, will that man be one of the everyone? He simply assumes so. But it's clear from our Lord's response that the man's assumption is a foolhardy one. And so we're given another parable. And it runs like this. 
that a man once gave a banquet. He invited all kinds of people to it, and presumably the many RSVP'd. I'm going to be there. I'm going to attend. And then the day comes. It was time. Everything was ready. And so the servant, he goes out and he publishes this gospel. He publishes this good news. He says, come, for everything is now ready. Yet, in a stunning turn of events, which we see in verses 18 to 20, the expected guest list begins to evaporate. One by one, the excuses begin to pour in. I've got a new field to survey. <laughs> I've got five yoke of oxen. Got to go check them out. I've got a wife. Praise God. <laughs> I got to go attend to her. Can't come into the kingdom right now. And this is where we need to pause for a moment. Because we need to see just how easily just how easily a person can miss out on the kingdom of God. And we need to bear in mind that Jesus is speaking to people who everybody thought would be first in line for the banquet. These aren't just, we might say, church folk. These are, we might say, Church leaders, the Pharisees. They're the experts in the Word of God. They're the, the holiest of all the people of Israel, set apart. And they've all just sat at table with Jesus, the Christ. But in this parable, Jesus is saying, they are the excuse makers they are the ones who let things like business and profit and marriage keep them out of the kingdom. Things which in their own right are good, but if allowed to reign and rule in us, can choke out the Word of God, parable of the seed, the soil, the whatever, Choke out the Word of God. Harden our hearts to Christ. Bury the actual treasure. And endanger the soul. Which is why our first missional element as a church is what? To treasure Jesus Christ. There it is. Treasure Jesus Christ. It's so our lives don't end up out of order. Out of orbit. Is that tomorrow morning, Monday morning, Christ would be on the throne when you're at work. Christ would be on the throne when you go to the bank. Christ would be on the throne when you go to your classroom. Christ would be on the throne in the conversations you have. Christ would be on the throne in your home. Christ would be on the throne everywhere else as well. It's that as he says, we would be a kingdom first people. That we couldn't even imagine a life without Jesus at the center, touching and transforming everything as a testimony to Himself, His glory and His grace. But apparently, apparently, that is not the emphasis 
of the Pharisee. Would you listen carefully, okay? Because we are surrounded in a culture of cultural Christianity. So just listen. Friends, uh, it is far too easy where only the form of godliness rules to let the cares of this world consume and harden us. And if we aren't careful to be consistently repenting there, even prove us to have been outsiders to the world of Christ in the end. We must hear the marriage supper of the Lamb cannot be a side dish to our life. And if it is, no excuse, but only repentance will cut it. And now, this is not only instruction for our own souls. It's fodder for going out and collecting as many souls as we can for the kingdom. So in verse 21, the servant reports all this disaster to the host. And while he is angered by it, you see, he does not call off the banquet. Okay? His house must be filled. And so their loss becomes others' gain. Their rejection becomes others' riches as the servant now goes out quickly to gather up a congregation, we might say, of misfits. That is, in the place of those you'd expect to be present, there are now those poor and crippled and blind and lame and gasp city folk. What a scandal of grace. And they take hold of it. That's the wonder here. They take hold of it. They, they stream into the banquet hall. They, they receive the invitation to come in. But so the servant has done what he was told to do. And, and, and that's, just, that's the end of the parable, right? No. No, not hardly. Upon it, we get one of my favorite lines in the Bible. It's convenient. As I'm preaching it. He's brought so many people now into the banquet. But as he looks around the house, what does he see? And what does he say? He says, there is still more room. Wow. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. The host then says, okay, great. Go out and get more. Go further. Not just to the streets and lanes of the city. Go to the highways. Go to the hedges. And, and you, you compel people to come into the kingdom that my house may be filled. <laughs> so, beloved, is all of this in front of us? All what, you ask? That today, as an epic, Today is the day of salvation. Christ is, however, returning. 
And the banquet will soon be ready. So that it is now incumbent upon us then to fly out everywhere and compel people to come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ and to do so with the bigness of God's purpose and God's grace front and center. Friends and family here, church family, while it is today, we can say, we can say there is still more room. How many has He redeemed throughout history since Adam? (laughs) We don't know. In a thousand lifetimes, I think, we wouldn't be able to number them. And still, there is room. How many from all the nations? An innumerable multitude we know, right? As we read church history and reckon with so many great awakenings and true revivals of the Holy Spirit and calculate all the numbers, hundreds of thousands upon hundreds of thousands, we can step back from all that and say, still, there is more room. And God's house will be filled. I just see the boundless expanse of His purpose and grace, and know that there is not one seat at this great banquet, but what the love of Christ has bought and afforded. See see the, the endless scope of His blood. See how by streets and lanes and highways and hedges and all manner of deficiency and deformity, there is not one person that He will not receive. There is none who cannot be saved. There's none so evil or broken or destitute or hopeless who cannot enter the joy of the redeemed if only they will come to Christ. Here I'm reminded of the traveling preacher who said this a long time ago. We came to a town about six o'clock in the evening and I was surprised. So surprised. So much drunkenness, so much cursing, so much swearing, even among the children. He says, I don't recall seeing so much sin ever in so small a compass of time. Surely, this place, I'm not going to make it through. He says, surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so an hour later, 7 o'clock, he, he walks out to the poorest and most contemptible part of the town. And he says he began to sing the 100th Psalm, which I don't know if I would do, but he did. And he says, at the beginning of it, three or four came to see the sight. He said, soon, soon after, it was four or five hundred. And before I'd finished preaching, it might have been twelve or fifteen hundred to whom I was able to preach. He was wounded for our transgressions. Man. 
you're unbelieving this hour, I plead with you now to leave your sins for him who came to save you from them. I pray that you would come to him who delights to bring sinners into the kingdom of God. And dear ones, I must ask, are we being faithful to these realities? Are we as the servant here? Are we doing all that's asked of us? Are we believing in the might of His glory and grace? Are we compelling people to come into the kingdom of God? Is there an urgency with us? Are we going out as this servant quickly, not just to the the buttoned up, but to the broken down? May Charles Spurgeon's words fill our hearts. That quote, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they would perish, let them at least have to perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay and be saved. Still, there is room that will absolutely be filled. Who are you dying to invite into the kingdom today? Cultivate Christ's community. Embrace Christ's commission. I know it's not exactly lightning from belly buttons and all. But it is nonetheless the discovery or rediscovery we need to take from this time around the table with this king. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, please, bear 10,000 more times the fruit that I could ever ask or imagine to pray for. In Jesus' name, amen.